I really didn't have any pain when I died. And then I just had this really weird moment of like, what's going on? And I can see this like rapid kind of up and down movement and my brain won't wrap itself around the fact that I'm witnessing CPR in progress and uh, that's going to change the tone of this whole rescue. I'm Rebecca Huntington and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk and rescue in the backcountry. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of Teton County Search and Rescue. In this episode, we talk with Mike Connolly, his wife Julie, and their ski partner John Cook. They tell us about the day Mike suffered a massive heart attack while backcountry skiing on a popular peak in Grand Teton National Park. We also hear from Park Rescue Ranger Scott Gunther and Search and Rescue Medical Director Will Smith. The two rescuers were short-hauled to the scene a method that involves flying suspended from a rope beneath the helicopter. You can support helicopter rescues that save lives in the backcountry of Jackson Hole by making a donation online. Simply go to backcountryzero.com slash heli and donate. You can also support Backcountry Zero, a Jackson Hole community vision to reduce fatalities in the Tetons by sharing this podcast with family and friends. Mike Conley from Victor and Idaho Falls. I moved to Bozeman in 1980 from Massachusetts to attend graduate school at Montana State University. Rapidly discovered that as opposed to Nordic racing, that backcountry skiing was a lot more enjoyable. So I started skiing in the Tetons in the winter of 82 and 83. Then we moved to Idaho Falls in the late 80s and then bought a home in Victor in 1997. Julie and I just were recently married about a year and a half ago, and so Julie started backcountry skiing with me in the Tetons about four or five years ago. March 3rd was our 43rd day of skiing this year, about 18 of those in the backcountry. Gorgeous day. It's my kind of skiing. I'm the fair weather. I know Mike likes the colder conditions because the snow's better. I was climbing in a sweater. It was ideal for a while. (laughs) Julie being new to the Tetons and the other two folks that were with us, uh, John Cook and Randy Lee, Julie's brother, um, had never been on Maverick before. John Cook, I'm from Idaho Falls, Idaho. We uh, started skinning up right out of the parking lot. Mike was going for it, you know, and uh, he was uh, drilling it up the skin track. The day started out as, as a beautiful, nice, crisp blue sky, sunny day, and we were progressing along very nicely in the skin track, and uh, after we put the Lopstopper on John and, and Randy's skins. I suggested to John that he ought to just take off and go to the top and do a couple laps because that's generally what he does. That's the only way he can keep up with us is by doing extra <laughs> laps. So, so then it was just Julie and Randy and myself. Julie and I stopped and just had a quick sip of tea, a little bite to eat, and then we kept going. And we were probably a couple switchbacks from where we finally stopped. Started to get a mild pain kind of in the middle of my chest. I just kind of ignored it. I didn't really think anything of it. Randy doesn't do as much backcountry skiing. He was getting a little tired and we just decided um, to stop. Somewhere around the three hour mark, we weren't that far from where we were going to turn around anyway. Randy and Mike were in front of me. Randy said that Mike said, wow, my, my chest is kind of bothering me. A couple switchbacks back before we stopped. And we were just you know taking our skins off, drinking some more tea, just, you know, putting our packs back together, switching out wet clothes, that kind of stuff, and got all ready to go, put our packs back on. And Mike has still had not said a word that his chest was bothering him to me. And he bent down to put his skis back in ski mode rather than walking, climbing mode. 
and he stood up and he got a real funny look on his face and he just said, I don't, I don't feel right. I was like, what, what's up? And he's like, my, my chest hurt. Mike was able to whistle really loud to get John's attention so he didn't ski past us. I went up a few hundred feet higher than the rest of the group. I heard him whistle a few times. I, I couldn't see him at first, but then I figured out where they were and, and came over and Mike wasn't changing over his gear as quickly as he usually would. So we got him to take his pack off and thought maybe getting all that weight off his chest would help. And he sat down, we kind of built a little bench and he just kind of looked at me and he said, I'm really scared. So he just said, make the call. I said, okay. And I couldn't believe I had cell service. On the other side of the Tetons, where we're always skiing over, you know, on the other side, I have no cell service. So that was miracle number one, I guess you could say. We just bought helicopter insurance and Mike had the good uh, sense to put that in my phone. Honestly, I did not think to call 911 up on the top of a mountain. And he said, call Air Idaho. And I was like, well, I don't know the number. He goes, I put it in your phone. (laughs) So they answered right away. And I said my name, where we were, and that I thought my husband was having a heart attack. And he was like, wait, wait a minute. And he took a few details. And then he said, you need to hang up and call 911. He said, 911 will dispatch who they need to. I did not know that, so that was a lesson learned. I got on the phone with 911 and went through the whole thing again, where we were. They asked a lot of questions about Mike. They wanted to know how many days we'd skied. Like, I think they were trying to rule out, was was he just tired? You know, like, were we used to doing this? His age and everything about all of it, who was in the party. And so the conversation went on for a while and John's like, come on, you know, hurry him up, Julie, get somebody coming here, so. They took my number and my brother's number, and in the meantime, Randy was getting our GPS coordinates off his cell phone, but they were able to ping mine and get our exact location, which was the point probably of 911 as well. They said they would call back, that someone would contact us and to just hang tight. I'm Scott Gunther, the Jenny Lake District Ranger in Grand Teton National Park. I think that first call to the Sheriff's Office came in right about 3 p.m., and that's where our incident commander, Chris Bellino, came into play. Chris pretty quickly gets on the phone, and basically what what he wants to know is, where are you and how bad is it? I just popped into the office just to check email really quickly, touch base. I get this word from Bellino like, hey, we've got a guy having chest pain on Maverick, and uh, we need resources. Will Smith, medical director for uh, Grand Teton National Park and Teton County Search and Rescue. I was actually doing short-haul training with uh, Teton County. We train very regularly, almost every week or every other week, and are now basically doing interchangeable and a short-haul partnership uh, between both Teton County Search and Rescue and Grand Teton National Park just makes it a seamless response. This really played into the success of this rescue is the fact that uh, in the last two years, our short-haul teams have worked a lot together and actually merged as resources. And so We don't necessarily play off like, oh, it has to be park rangers on the rescue. We go with the most appropriate resource, whoever's available, and the most appropriate person. And as happened in this case, Will and I are the two rescuers being short-hauled into that scene, and the spotter in the aircraft is a Teton County search and rescue member. So very interchangeable in that regard. On the county side, we use our cell phones to get our pages when they come out. So we get a text and we get a phone call saying that uh, short-haul was needed for a uh, park rescue. Got all my gear and went up to our county search and rescue hangar. We got loaded up in our helicopter and generally what we do is do a scene reconnaissance flight. You guys probably saw us fly over ahead a little bit trying to find out your exact location. 
We've got to do kind of weight and balance and power checks in the helicopter to make sure we've got enough power when we come up there to do a short haul. And then we went down and sat down at the incident command post, which is down on the Moose Wilson Road, where all the, the park rangers had, had gathered and getting their response plan and, and got coordinated. You know, preparedness is, is a big deal for those folks that are going to spend some time in the mountains, whether it's summer, winter, spring, fall, doesn't really matter. So one of the things that, that I've done is always try to be prepared for um, whatever may come up. I took a snow dynamics class as a graduate level class and uh, when I was in graduate school. Fairly comfortable with the snow dynamics and the avalanche side of it. Um, you know, We try to become comfortable with what we consider issues that you may run into, which are typically injury issues. There was an issue of Backcountry Magazine in, in January of 2017 where Stephanie Thomas had an article in there about, about the Backcountry Zero uh, initiative. A couple pages beyond that in the same one, there was an issue in there about being prepared for it in the backcountry. And they talked about medical issues as opposed to trauma issues. And I read that article, and one of the things that happened to talk about was having aspirin and Benadryl. Um, I always make sure I have Benadryl in my, my spring, summer, fall um, setup. I kind of ignored the aspirin piece, but we try to be prepared. So we make sure we carry our cell phones. Um, we do have a spot device. Um, I think in this particular case, yeah, the spot the spot device would have been of some help, whether it would have saved my life. I, I probably doubt it because we, with the cell phones, we were able to have two-way communication, and, and I think that probably helped. Preparedness is, is certainly um, something that I, I take to heart, and it's not only from a situational awareness perspective, but it's from a conditioning perspective. And Julie and I spend a tremendous amount of time, whether it's skiing, hiking, mountain biking, road biking, um, you know, we're doing something six days a week. And I've been doing that for over 40 years. That probably had some effect on my ability to survive the event. We stopped. And as Julie was saying, we, we, we had something to eat. We kind of hung out. I bent over to put my boots back in, in ski mode. And that's when I, I kind of got fairly lightheaded. So I took my pack off and then I kind of laid over on the snow and, you know, then we started making phone calls, um, back and forth. And one of the things that I kept reminding Julia of when she was, and when folks were, whether it was, whether I think, I believe it was Chris that kept asking for phone numbers, Julie would give the phone number and forget to give the area code. So, and this will come back in a, in, in a minute cause it was actually kind of funny, but I kept correcting her. No, you need to tell them the area code. You need to tell them the area code. You need to tell them the area code. So by the time they, they, the helicopter arrived for the recon, um, I was getting fairly weak. I was fairly cold. John, Randy, Julie were kind of standing around me, forming a kind of a shield. I was sitting on the packs. And so we waved at the helicopter. And, and um, the fact that they were able to fly their reconnaissance flight on their way in rather than come up and land, I'm thinking of things that saved time during this rescue. They were actually able to fly over, um, see Mike, and realize, yes, we can't land here, come down and then land and shut down. That saved us a lot of time rather than having to repeat that process as Scott was saying, they, you know, they, they, they made all the calculations they needed to make, called back and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We'll take him out on short haul, you know, make sure he's, uh, make sure he's got plenty of clothes on. I responded to that by saying, well, okay, I got one more layer I could put on. And I said, well, I stand up and I said, well, if I'm getting a harness, I, I, I need to relieve myself. <laughs> so, and this was probably a mistake on my part, but anyway, standing up, took a few steps Went to the bathroom, came back, had my jacket unzipped, had my gloves off, had my hat off, and because I was going to put some additional clothes on, and I knelt down on my pack, and I got extremely lightheaded, and that's um, when I passed out and went into cardiac arrest. And when I told everybody, I said, hey, I think I'm having a heart attack, and they all kind of looked at me like, what? 
they were like, you're the guide for the day. You can't have a heart attack <laughs> anyway. So first thing we did was, was and this, this goes back to the article in the Backcountry Magazine, is um, we had three first aid kits, pulled out all three first aid kits. Um, first aid kits do not, uh, do not have aspirin in them anymore. And Scott Gunther and myself were decided we're going to be the two uh, short haulers to be inserted. And our initial plan was to to put you in what we call a screamer suit. It's basically like a big diaper with big armholes and a, a big strap that comes up between your legs. And we were just going to hook you in the, the helicopter underneath this and, and just pull you right on out and really um, get you back down to the ambulance and the air ambulance or helicopter that was waiting for you. We're basically going light and fast. And I remember Will, we were talking, I said, okay, I got a, um, an airway kit, a really small first aid kit, basically, lightweight oxygen kit. And then uh, we brought the AED as well. But really, we were thinking, get this guy in the screamer suit and get him out. He's lasted, you know, well over an hour now. Seems like his condition hasn't changed significantly. So that's our plan going in. Will and I are able to talk while we're being inserted. So we're flying up the hill. It's probably about a four-minute or or so flight. While we're flying through the air, we're talking to each other going, okay, when we land, let's just uh, get off the end of the line, walk over the patient. Uh, Will, you decide if he's going to be able to tolerate this screamer suit. If he is, we're going to help load him up really quickly. I'll stay on scene so that I can just hook you two up and be right out of there. We were just going to have the helicopter circle. So all the way to the scene, this is our plan. As we get close, the pilot says, do you see him there on the ridge? And I look down and we're flying kind of backwards. So I'm looking over my shoulder and I see something in the middle of a snow slope. And I was like, yeah, I think I see him. And as I can spin around a little bit more, I go, oh, no, that's not them. And I'm, Will and I are both looking. And finally, I do see him. I'm like, okay, I got color. I can see people standing there. And then I just had this really weird moment of, like, what's going on? And I can see this, like, rapid kind of up and down movement, and my brain won't wrap itself around the fact that I'm witnessing CPR in progress immediately. And I, it just dawns on me, like, holy cow, they're doing compressions. Because three minutes before this, we were, you know, there was a conversation not long before, right before we took off that Mike's fine. So now I see CPR in progress and I have time to go on the radio right before we touch down, basically. Bellino, CPR in progress, and uh, that's going to change the tone of this whole rescue. And rapidly, we touch down. Will and I, our fast conversation is, okay, let me get us unhooked. You take the AED, run over there to the patient. It seemed like forever before you called us back. <laughs> when I, we made that initial call, they called Randy back and said, here's our plan. They, you guys were great about communicating with us and said, we're going to fly over and assess the situation, and then we will call you back again. And we, we all watched you fly over, and you seemed like you were over the hill for a long time, and, and then all of a sudden the helicopter came back by. John's like, call him back. He's getting worse, and he was freezing. He was shaking, and we didn't have any more clothes to put on him. And John's like, try to call him back. And so Randy, we tried, and it kept going to voicemail. And, and so Randy would text. He was trying to text on his phone, and I was just kind of hugging Mike and trying to keep him warm and stuff. And then somebody did call back, and you guys, t- that's when you told us, okay, we're coming back to short haul him. Because as you said, when you flew over, everybody was upright. The situation definitely went downhill quickly. And by that point, you know, we'd sat him up because he was cold laying in the snow. So when you flew over, he was actually sitting up. He decided, you know, so he needed to use the bathroom and that all happened. And then he, you know, bent down to, like he said, to undo his jacket. And we were digging around, going to put the vest back on him instead of trying to just, we had it over his legs and we were going to 
bundle them as much as we could as you suggested and he went face first and I don't know I shook him and I was like Mike and nothing happened and John rolled him over and it was like oh he's not he's not breathing his eyes had rolled back in his head and foam was coming out of his mouth so those guys just um... so we were able to get Mike rolled over uh, Randy checked uh, he had no pulse he wasn't breathing and we were able to start chest compressions. I would not been uh, trained in CPR before. Theoretically, I knew what to do. I think Randy had some training which was helpful. So we, we traded off, Randy and I, uh, every few minutes as we got tired. As these guys came up on the, the short haul, I was you know really happy to see the AED uh, in Will's hand when he came up. You're listening to The Fine Line, and I'm your host, Rebecca Huntington. You can support helicopter rescues that save lives in the backcountry of Jackson Hole simply by making a donation online. Go to backcountryzero.com slash heli and donate. With your donations, Teton County Search and Rescue can keep the rescue helicopter flying. As we were flying over, we did try and see if we could find a spot that we could land, and I was actually going to get out and ski down as a medical responder. Uh, with search and rescue, it's kind of the same, how much stuff can you carry and, and what stuff should that be? And so as uh, a doctor, uh, I've got lots of stuff I can bring, but it's just a matter of how much can I carry. And so it really goes back to a lot of the things that the military has figured out over the last uh, kind of decade and a half in Iraq and Afghanistan. Is it what makes the most sense at the right time in that continuum of care? Like Scott said, we decided that we were going to go very light. AED was really one of the things that I felt somebody with chest pain, if you go into cardiac arrest, that's really one of the immediate life-saving interventions that needs to be done right away. And the sooner that you can get that, the higher chance of survival. The rest of the medications and other things like that, um, those all help at some point. But uh, early CPR, uh, recognition of cardiac arrest, I think the fact that uh, um, you had companions that started CPR immediately is one of those additional incremental things that allow us to have a successful outcome. The new CPR campaigns are just push hard and fast in the center of chest. It's exactly what you've, uh, you guys did, so I mean that was all done perfectly. Got dropped off and Scott got us unhooked out of the, the short haul and I went over with the AED and in my mind that was the, the number one thing to do was the CPR is in progress is to go ahead and get that AED on board and deliver that shock. The nice thing about having dispatchers is they do an incredible part of this uh, response and, and they often don't get the credit that uh, all of us do for actually being on scene, but they're very important in that chain of survival as well. So looking back through the dispatch logs, it looks like that Mike arrested probably three to five minutes before we got there. That's kind of that magic time frame. So getting that AED shock there, getting that early CPR, and so, yeah, when we put the AED on and we kind of peshed analyze and it said shock advised, that's when I knew, hey, we've got a chance here. And so that's why um, I started having Scott start calling for additional resources. That's why I actually called for one of the mechanical CPR devices that we have in the community. Because I was going to continue to do CPR, even short hauling him out, just because that chance of survival was up there. Most of the time we get in for search and rescue, CPR has been done for a while, or the person's been down for a while, even without CPR, we'll put the AED on, and it basically says no shock advised. And in that case, then that's a patient that's most likely deceased. And we only did one shock. 
and then we just resume right back on CPR. And so those are some of the newer changes that they've found with doing uh, cardiac arrest survival is that the heart, even if it's starting to beat back to normal, it's not enough to circulate enough blood and have a, a strong pulse. So even after we shock, we just go right back on CPR. And at the next two-minute cycle, and again, everything's based on two minutes, programmed into the machine, and it should no shock advised as well at that time. And so we just continued the CPR. And about five of those cycles, so about 10 minutes, is when we got a pulse back. Randy and I continued to trade off CPR. During the course of one of those cycles, he handed me a, a O2 sensor to put on Mike's finger. So I was able to get that on there. The first reading was in the 40s. And uh, I took a look at that and said, Mike, you're going to have to do a little bit better than that. In that first three to five minutes for most of the typical cardiac arrest, there's enough oxygen still in the bloodstream. And so it's really just that important thing to get those compressions. After about that five to 10 minute mark, or if it was a another cardiac arrest cause like in pediatrics with an airway problem or drowning, then that's when you need to do kind of the respirations up front. But even for like the, the dispatchers will help community 911 calls do hands-only CPR. And so again, that compressions is really important in that first three to five minutes for most of these arrests. When we landed, I'm like, oh, thank God Will's here because <laughs> I know what job he's going to have. Um, and then uh, and then I'm the helper. And so I also get to kind of manage the scene. These guys were doing great compressions and Will was able to coach them as well, even jumped in on a cycle of compression. So for, I got together our airway kit, um, turned on the oxygen, got the bag valve mask out, which is actually just a soft-sided bag that is filling with oxygen when it's not being squeezed from our oxygen tank. And then when you squeeze it, it forces that air through the mask into Mike's airway in between cycles of CPR. Mike was kind of laying in an awkward position, a little bit head down. And so my next job was to create a better platform for us, pulled out the shovel and started carving out a platform. Once I had that done, I remember Julie, I was, I got up there and was kind of holding up Mike's legs. I could see the obvious stress on for you in this situation. I remember asking you like, hey, can you come down and hold him up? Like, come touch him. You were standing off to the side. And I was like, my thought then was, geez, man, he could be dying right here. Like, you should come down and talk to him. He can hear you, I think I said. I think those are important things because I was like, this this might be the end for Mike. I wanted you to be there and holding on to him. Yes, I think he was trying to give me jobs <laughs> because before that, he told me the helicopter was going to come close and that I needed to pick up any loose pieces of clothing. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, after it was all over with, I was like, the helicopter did not come close. It couldn't land. But Randy's like, I think he's just giving you some jobs, Julie. <laughs> You're boiling the water. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you kind of took over holding up Mike's legs, and we were getting to the point where we were going to try and move him down to that better platform. Right at one of those pauses, and it was like, okay, let's do a pulse check. When the AED was analyzing and said no shock advised, I reached down for a radial pulse. Will was going for a carotid up at the neck, and Will says, I have a pulse. And I said, I feel a radial pulse. And then at that point, I think we saw Mike start to move a little bit. And I remember getting on the radio quickly and saying, hey, we've got return of spontaneous circulation. We want a backboard and a litter to, to get Mike out of there. And while we were waiting for that, we just kind of took a minute. I think once you get that return of spontaneous circulation, have a palpable pulse, he's still in a very fragile state. Once we started getting the pulse back and started having some spontaneous respirations, we just assist those with the, the bag valve mask. These are all incrementally good signs that, hey, we're actually going to make a difference here. However, like Scott said, we're still in a precarious situation just because about 
somewhere in 30 to 50%, and depending on the studies, those patients will return to cardiac arrest. We still weren't kind of completely out of the woods yet, so to speak. But then the the next thing is when we started seeing movement that was good. When Mike did wake up, because they said, come come here, he's awake, he can hear you. He was actually in that sled thing at that point. I bent over to talk to Mike, and while I was there, somebody again asked me my cell phone number. I don't know if it was one of the search and rescue people or not, but Mike has been unresponsive for a good 30 minutes now. Like, I'm thinking this isn't this isn't going to turn out good no matter what, you know, if, if he lives through this. While I was bent over there by Mike, I, I said my cell again to someone. Mike pops up and he goes, 208. <laughs> <laughs> he remembers that we're in yeah. Wyoming and that I did not give my area code once again. <laughs> and all of us just kind of stood there like, did that just happen? Yeah, that was pretty good. I remember when uh, so when we moved Mike down, the other rescuers came in and we moved Mike into that uh, litter packaging and we were getting pretty close to where we were going to fly him out with Will. I remember thinking again, and I'll tell you this now, but I was like, I wasn't sure that Mike was going to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I said, like, come down and talk to him, stand at his head, talk to him right now. Because I very honestly could have been the last time mm-hmm. you were ever going to be able to mm-hmm. talk to him. And I remember, too, when we put Mike in the bag, like, he hadn't said anything yet. And uh, and as we were packaging him up, I looked down and I saw your eyes were open. And this is the first time I'd noticed that because when we got there, your eyes were rolled back in your head and you looked like you were focusing. And I said, you hadn't said a word. And I said, can you see me? And you nodded. And I said, look in my eyes. And you focused at me and you understood what was going on. And uh, I don't think you actually said a word. And, and then it wasn't more than a few minutes after that that uh, we moved you in a position for that short haul extraction and had... Will asking your phone number and Mike relaying the area code for you. <laughs> and it was like, holy cow. And I remember putting a hat on you right before you left. Uh-huh. I said, I'm going to put a hat on your head. And you actually picked your head up. And, and I mean, these were all amazing signs. I was like, holy cow, we got here. Mm-hmm. That guy was clearly deceased, mm-hmm. non-responsive. And uh, to just, you know, 10 to 15 minutes later, actually having you with spontaneous movement, talking, understanding, following directions was pretty amazing. As we were getting short hauled out, my biggest concern was that you were going to rearrest. And as we were flying out, I was trying to keep talking to you, and I didn't hear that you respond to me at a couple of times. And so I was thinking that you had gone back into cardiac arrest, and we we're in now a period of where we weren't doing compression. So I was going through all the things in my mind to to do as soon as we sat down at the in the parking lot to get you back exposed, get the AED hooked right back up onto you, and kind of. Uh, get that reshock uh, or the next shock delivered. But then as we started getting slow, you again opened your eyes and you asked, where are we at? And I said, you were just uh, had a cardiac arrest in uh, Grand Teton National Park. And you said, well, I know I'm in the park, but we're at in the park. And so again, the, the neurons are all still functioning and working and they weren't without oxygen for a long period of time. But yeah, so we got you set down in the parking lot and we got you moved into the ambulance just to put some uh, IVs in, do some additional monitoring equipment, uh, did a 12 lead and, and saw that you were having an ST elevation MI and so really needed to get to that cardiac cath lab. The flight crew was there, important to fly flight, transported Mike. I don't obviously remember much of anything <laughs> and I certainly don't remember that me spurting out the 208. I, I, I do remember being jostled around and, and some parts of of the the flight back to the uh, to the incident center, um, I remember you know being moved around, put into the ambulance to be a little more stabilized, and then being put into uh, the larger uh, air ambulance helicopter, and 
I remember pieces and parts of the flight because um, I was extremely cold. I was freezing, and I was I was moving around, especially moving my feet, and they kept yelling at me uh, <laughs> to not move my feet because I was I was interfering with something, and I was like, "Well, I'm freezing." I remember landing at the uh, Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center in Idaho Falls and being rushed through the emergency room into the cath lab. So I had a full blockage of the lower anterior descending artery, the LAD. So when they put the first stent in, restored some blood flow to the heart. So I went into VTAC, um, and all of a sudden people start yelling and screaming at me, and <laughs> everybody's kind of running around in the in the cath lab, and, and they're yelling at me to cough. And I'm like, cough? I can hardly move. Um, and I looked up, and here comes the paddles. So as opposed to the first time I was shocked, I was actually semi-conscious and awake, for the second shocking, which is something I uh, don't recommend putting on your bucket list as something you want to go try out to see how it feels. They told me they were putting him in an ambulance and then they were going to transfer him to another helicopter and fly him out, which at that point I realized I wasn't going with him. We kind of all discussed what we were going to do. It's getting late at this point. They decided to come back and short haul me out Randy and John are like, no, she can't ski. I, w- I was very cold after standing around for three hours in light um, backcountry boots and stuff. My feet were freezing. and I was just kind of probably shocky. Uh, they were like, no, she's not skiing out. There were two other search and rescue folks, uh, a lady that was, I think, a paramedic, and then another man who was really tall. I remember that because <laughs> he could reach around me. I was a little nervous. And, um, they layered me up with a bunch of uh, clothes, but somebody had a great big poofy that was awesome. They put that harness on me, and they just walked me through it and you know, told me that just hold still, that the helicopter was going to fly overhead and the rope was going to swing and that my instinct would be to grab it. And I was like, no, <laughs> it won't be. <laughs> so they said, just hold your hook out here and wait. And while we were standing there, the gentleman said, have you ever flown before? And I was like, not on the outside of a helicopter. <laughs> and he was like, oh, good point. So <laughs> they grabbed the rope, hooked me in. So it's all of the gear, Mike's skis, my skis, our backpacks, the two folks that were with us, all their gear. And that kind of went across my lap, just like they said it would when they hooked me up because I was in a harness that leaned you back to sit. And they were kind of more upright. All that gear kind of went across my lap and it was it was heavy, but I didn't care. And he kind of just put his arm around me and just said to keep me from trolling, which was nice. <laughs> it was short and cold, and I was pretty shook up by the time we landed. I spent uh, six days, I guess, um, in the hospital. I was struggling a little bit with uh, fluid buildup and, and uh, O2 levels. There's a requirement in the hospital that you cannot be discharged unless you can maintain your oxygen level above 92% without supplemental oxygen. That took... Um, a fair number of days to get to that point where I could do that. I made an appointment um, at University of Utah Medical School to be evaluated. That was about two weeks ago. So we did what they call a submax. So I now know what uh, 80% of my current maximum is. So in my daily training, you know, whether I'm on the treadmill or I'm on my bike outside, I always have a heart monitor on. So I'm fully capable of of staying at that 80% level for a fair bit of time. I get a little bit nervous <laughs> so with my heart being at that rate. So I, I stay there for a while and then I say, well, I better slow down. I'm being um, cautiously optimistic that I will, uh, I'll be able to enjoy a, a good hiking in uh, mountain bike season, although not maybe not at the same level that I'm <laughs> used to doing uh, mountain biking and hiking at. We will... Uh, take our road bikes and um, go do a road ride today in the 
Teton Park. Hopefully this will be my first adventure beyond uh, 20 miles on my road bike this year. So Julie's, Julie's agreed to carry the, uh, the AED device that I, that, I, that I now personally have, my own personal AED. It actually weighs three pounds. I'm actually joking, we probably won't carry it with us today, but uh, we will take it on trips with us. And, you know, I think Will pointed out earlier, you know, there's, there's only so many things that you can plan for um, and be prepared for. You know, I, I have to kind of set that in the back of my head a little bit. And I do have an AD device because I, I run a fairly high risk of uh, stent thrombosis um, because I, I have a, a genetic defect that, that predisposes me to blood clotting. And I had a significant blood clotting issue almost exactly a year before I had my heart attack in that I had uh, simultaneous blood clots in both lungs affecting all lobes. And I was in the emergency room dealing with that. So I have a, a double whammy kind of thing when it comes to a circulatory issue. So I'm going to be overly cautious with being sure in the next 6 to 12 months that I don't have a, uh, a follow-on catastroph catastrophic event like a stent thrombosis, which would probably be the end of my life. I don't mean this, this, this flippantly, but... I really didn't have any pain when I died. I just got really lightheaded and over I went. Was I uh, relatively nervous and scared on the hill? Yeah. I said to myself, you know, this is really probably not a good place to have a heart attack. Thankfully, you guys are extremely well trained in, in what you do. The doctors in Idaho Falls were very good at what they do in terms of interventional cardiology. My friends and my wife were we're very good at, uh, at managing the situation until help arrived. It was a beautiful day so everybody could fly. Everything kind of lined up and, and all together. And I say from a self-reflection perspective, it's, it's pretty hard to uh, explain. You just said, I really didn't have much pain when I died. <laughs> like how many people can say that? <laughs> very small number. It's really inspirational to sit here and be able to look at you and listen to you tell your story. Um, that's amazing. And the see Julie and John, I'd love to see Randy again, but like to piece all this together and come full circle. And I was thinking back to all of the uh, various people that were involved in this thing to make mm -hmm. it happen. Like Will and I are a very small part of it, part of a whole. And Will's mentioned it. Like I mean, it's all the way back from when you guys decided to make a relatively early call and knew right. that you needed help to the dispatcher going, okay, this is in the park. Let's route it to the park. All the people in the background that were coming together to get to the scene to rescue you. A couple of those folks that I was thinking about in there were the people inside the helicopter. They weren't privy to all the conversations going on on other radio channels during this time. So you may not have heard this, but the pilot and the spotter, the person in the back of the helicopter, kind of the second set of eyes. When they came and picked you and Will up and were flying out, they actually had not yet heard that we had re returned with spontaneous circulation that you had a heartbeat again and were actually alive. And so all the way down, I know the spotter in the helicopter was thinking like, ah, oh, this is a bummer. Like this guy, he's dead. The will's not doing anything. We're, nobody down on the scene looked like they were that frantic and moving that fast. He's dead. He's not going to make it. And they landed and, and they took you over to the ambulance and the helicopters shut down and that spotter got out and he went over to one of the deputies that was on the scene there and and, uh, and he's like, oh, I'm so bummed, like this guy died. If we could, we've gotten there a little bit sooner. And the deputy had said to him, what do you mean he's, he's dead? Like, I just talked to him. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently at that point, Tim was so excited. He was hugging everybody. I mean, it just made his day. It was pretty That's funny great. that, that uh, all through that cycle, he was like, oh, we lost one. I'm bummed. What could we have done better? For the rescuers, it's really gratifying to 
be able to have a successful outcome like this. This isn't always the case. And uh, a lot of times we think about those ones that didn't go well and, uh, and those weigh heavy on us. So when we have one that was really successful and a lot of us can celebrate, I think it's, I think that's really, really neat. I want to echo what Scott said. It's very rare that we get to come and talk to our patients. It definitely gives us satisfaction for what we do. I mean, I think this is probably one of the uh, call outs that will kind of stand out in my career. There's a, a lot of folks behind the scene um, that unfortunately I, I can't directly reach out to and thank. I can't express my gratitude enough to uh, everybody involved. You know, we made the initial call to 911, I believe, at 2.59. And the timestamp that I have from the cath lab and at the hospital, I believe, is uh, 6.30. So it's a tremendous amount of work done by a whole group of people in three and a half hours that saved my life. We talk about the chain of survival, which came out from the American Heart Association. So it's not one little thing, it's incremental things that you do. So kind of like you said, good preparation, good exercise, good health, and then early activation of the 911 system, early access to defibrillator. So if you're going to build your first aid kit, and it's actually a, a decent controversy out there in the wilderness medicine kind of realms is, is the AED something that should be in those kits? And so you just have to balance how much you have with how much you can carry with the probability of what is going to be the event that happens. And like you said, trauma is generally what we think of in the backcountry. That's what a lot of our search and rescue calls end up going out for. But uh, we've had several cardiac arrests that are the, the primary medical event, generally one every year or every two. So um, it's not that uncommon. It just was not Mike's day to go because <laughs> nine times out of 10, Mike and I are by ourselves in the backcountry whether we're mountain biking, hiking, or skiing. And I would like to think if it were just me that I could help him with CPR. In fact, I'm going to a CPR first aid class tomorrow. We're driving back to Idaho Falls. You know, I, I don't know that I could have made the call, done CPR, done all that by myself, and kept Mike alive. If it were just the two of us, I'd like to think that I could at least attempt the CPR and I'll feel better after our class tomorrow. And we do have an AED now, so I, I'll practice with that. But forever grateful to John and Randy. We would have gone without him. We had one other person kind of bail at the last minute. We would just go anyway because we're over here every weekend and everything just lined up. Having cell service, being with those guys, the clear weather, your quick response. I didn't think that was going to be the way that turned out after what, what witnessing what Mike went through. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.